reading from Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And now, if you are able, can you please stand for the gospel reading taken from Luke 24, 1 to 9. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went in to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. As they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What do you think happens when you die? Here in North America, it seems more and more that we simply do not know what to think about death. On the one hand, we do everything to avoid even talking about it. We say, she passed on or he passed away. She departed or He's gone to a better place. It sounds a bit like we've put them on an aeroplane to go on a vacation on a tropical island. Or we say they're at peace, they're freed, or they're released, as if this life is a terrible prison, and it's better for them to be dead than alive. Though for some reason, those of us who are still alive 
try everything that we can to stay in this prison as long as possible. We do all we can to avoid the simple statement that our friend or our family member is dead. And yet on the other hand, we're also obsessed with death in this culture. You cannot watch one evening of primetime television on any major North American TV network without seeing programs filled with death, murders, and even serial killers who seem to have become the main characters in an alarming number of shows. The answer to the great question, what happens when you die, according to the television, appears to be a team of crack forensic detectives investigate your grisly murder and capture, or more often shoot, whoever was responsible. Death is something final, and the only thing left to be done is to find someone to blame for it. Strange, isn't it? Avoidance on the one hand, and obsession on the other. A new show started recently, you might have seen it, it's a revival of a popular 1970s, 1980s uh, series, Fantasy Island, where people visit this magical island and their dreams come true. In the first new episode, an older woman who is dying from cancer comes to the island. So there's the obsession with death. Now, the producers of that show are, are no fools. They know that the story can't be her being healed. Otherwise, the show will just rapidly become Medical Miracle of the Week, and the audiences would soon tune out. So what was their solution? Well, at the end of the episode, she simply stays on the island so that she never has to die. There's the avoidance of death. There you go, avoidance and obsession, both in a single episode of network television. Now, the Bible doesn't treat death in either of these ways. It says that there is a time to be born and a time to die. It says that death is a tragic event. God, when he made human beings, did not intend them to die. But his good creation was corrupted, and death was the consequence. At the end of every life is death. Death is exactly where we are all headed. And the question the Bible repeatedly raises is, are you ready for what happens next? All of us surely have asked that question at one time or another. What do you think happens when you die? Perhaps you've been at a funeral and you know that what is there is just a body. The person who they were is gone. And you've asked, where are they now? Is there life after death? What do you think? What do you think happens when you die? When you ask that question of a cross-section of people, even in secular Canada, you very, very rarely get the answer, nothing. In fact, uh, sociologists have found that it's instinctive and almost universal that humans, whatever the culture they come from, believe in life after death. So the question we're faced with is, are we ready for that? 
And the Bible says it's appointed for people once to die, and after that, the judgment. There is something after death, according to this book. In fact, from beginning to end, the Bible teaches that this life is only a preparation for eternity. Is there life after death? The answer from the Bible is a resounding yes. And how can we know for sure? And there is one person who can speak authoritatively about this. Jesus of Nazareth was a first century Jewish man who lived in northern Israel under the Roman occupation. He was executed by the Roman authorities at the request of the religious leaders of Israel because his teaching, which had become very popular, contradicted theirs and threatened their position of power over the people. The Bible says that after Jesus' suffering and death by crucifixion and the burial of his body, a remarkable thing happened. People saw him alive. Not just a few people, but hundreds. And not just on one occasion, but again and again over the course of more than a month. As a church, we've just started reading a Bible book called The Acts of the Apostles. Right at the beginning of that book, we're told, after Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to his disciples and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. In another place, the Bible says that Christ died for our sins as the scriptures had said he would, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day just as the scriptures had promised, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12 disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, some of whom were still living at the time that this was written. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to Paul, who wrote these things down. Many appearances of the risen Jesus, alive even though he'd been executed and buried, many appearances of the risen Jesus are described in the Bible such as in the passage that was read for us just a few moments ago. The Bible is certain in its repeated assertion that after he died, Jesus was raised from the dead. And it uses the term resurrection. Jesus was resurrected from the dead to new life. Billy Graham, the great evangelist, tells the story of when he was visiting Germany in the early 1960s. Out of the blue, he received an invitation to meet with the German Chancellor, Konrad Adenauer, uh, the German head of state at the time. He had no idea why the Chancellor would want to see him. He was there to preach. But he went, and he was greeted by this big, tall giant of a man a man who had led Germany since 1949 out of the devastation of the Second World War, back to democracy, stability, back to economic prosperity, restoring Germany's place on the world stage. And in his account of this meeting, Billy Graham says he wondered, what does this great man want of me? 
And he says the first question he asked was this. Do you believe in life after death? Billy Graham said, yes, sir, I do. I believe the Bible teaches it. He said, I do too. He said, I am studying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, when I leave office as chancellor, I intend to spend the rest of my life studying the resurrection of Christ because he said, if Christ is alive, there is hope in the world. If Christ is not alive, there is no hope that I can see that civilization can be saved. That is what the Bible teaches. The hope of the world, the hope for you and I, is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Why? Because it proves that Jesus was who he said he was. Sometimes you hear people say things like, Jesus, uh, yes, I think he was a great teacher. Or, Jesus, he was a great man who went around doing good things. The problem with saying those things is that Jesus doesn't agree. He didn't claim to be a great teacher or a great moral example. He claimed to be God. God come into the world he had created in human form. Now, if someone claims to be God, then either they must be lying, deliberately out to deceive others, or they must be mad, like the person who claims that they're Napoleon or, or a Christmas tree, or they must be telling the truth. See, Jesus doesn't give us the option of saying he's, he's just a good man or a great teacher. He's either a, a liar or a madman, or he is who he said he was. God come in the flesh to free us from the corruption in the world and the judgment that we deserve for our part in that. God come in the flesh to free us from death and to restore to us the life that he had intended for us. That's why resurrection is so significant. It proves that Jesus was who he said he was. No one could come back from the dead but God himself. That's why the Bible says Jesus gave his followers many convincing proofs over those 40 days when he appeared to them. They needed and we need to know that what he said about himself was true. What are these convincing proofs? Well, for one thing, Jesus had told his followers that he was going to rise from the dead. He'd even told them exactly when that was going to happen on the third day. No one could do that unless they had authority over what was going to happen. Second, there were all of those appearances of the risen Jesus. All of those people were able to confirm that they really had seen Jesus resurrected. And of course, that's exactly what they did. Having seen this extraordinary thing take place, they naturally went around telling others about it. That's how Christianity began. That's how the Christian faith suddenly spread all over the Roman world in an astonishingly short space of time. But that came with a cost. 
Almost immediately, followers of Jesus who had seen him after his resurrection began to be imprisoned and persecuted. James, one of three disciples who'd been closest to Jesus, was executed. And that showed the others what they were in for if they kept talking about Jesus' resurrection. But when you've seen something as powerful as that, nothing is going to stop you from telling the truth. The lives of those who witnessed Jesus' resurrection were transformed. Farmers and fishermen went all over the Roman world at huge personal cost, risking life and limb to tell others the good news that in Jesus, death had been conquered, that Jesus was alive. According to historical tradition, all but one of Jesus' 12 disciples were executed for proclaiming the news about Jesus. To them, the resurrection was not a hope, not a story, but a fact. They had nothing to gain and literally everything to lose if they kept declaring it. And yet they all chose to do so. But it isn't just those first disciples. All through history, for almost 20 centuries now, Christians have encountered the living Jesus, not generally face to face, but in ways so real to them that their lives have been transformed. There are a number of books written by people who were absolutely convinced that the resurrection couldn't possibly be true. And two of the most famous of these, uh, one by a lawyer and one by an investigative journalist, neither of the authors believed in God. And both of these men set out to prove conclusively that the resurrection could not possibly be true. Each one simply couldn't find any way to explain the evidence that they examined apart from the resurrection of Jesus. And like those first disciples, both of them became lifelong followers of the risen Christ. Yes, Jesus rose from the grave. The Bible says that when the women who'd known him went to the tomb, expecting to anoint his dead body, they found it empty. Instead, they found two men dressed in white who asked them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. That is the greatest news anyone in the world has ever heard. He has conquered the grave. Jesus is alive. Death can be, has been, overcome. Just think about what we know about Jesus for a moment. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter's shop till he was 30. Then for three years he was a traveling preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He didn't own a house. He didn't go to college. He almost never even visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 years old when the tide of public opinion turned against him. He was arrested and almost all of his friends abandoned him. 
He was turned over to his enemies and he, he went through the mockery of a sham trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property that he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he is the most significant figure in the entire history of the human race. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of humanity on this earth as much as that one solitary man. Why? Because he rose from the dead. Jesus is alive. What happens when you die? The Bible says that you will meet the risen Jesus and he will say to you, Welcome, friend. Come and enter into new life. Or he will say, Depart from me. I never knew you. But the way to friendship with Jesus is always open. Even today, even this afternoon, the living Lord Jesus invites you to enter into friendship with him. He offers you the new life that his resurrection proves he has the authority to give. Through his death and resurrection, he has earned the right to give you new life, freedom from the judgment each of us deserves for the ways that we've failed to live the life that we're living now according to God's intentions. All the ways that we've turned our back on him and contributed to the corruption of the world he created. All the things that we've done wrong and said wrong and thought wrong. And all the times that we've failed to do the good in this world that we could have done. By dying on the cross, Jesus took the judgment that each of us deserves for all of this. His resurrection proves his victory over death and his invitation to you is to join him by faith in his resurrection life. I'm going to pray in a moment. And I invite you, if you know that the Lord has been speaking to you, to pray this prayer with me. It doesn't matter whether you think of yourself as a Christian or not, whether you normally attend church or not, whether you pray or not. If you've sensed God speaking to you this afternoon, then I urge you to respond to him today. You can echo this prayer in your mind if you choose. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I know that I've done wrong in my thoughts, words, and actions. There are so many good things that I've not done. There are so many wrong things that I have done. I'm sorry for my sins, and I turn from everything I know to be wrong. 
You gave your life upon the cross for me. Gratefully, I give my life back to you. Now I ask you to come into my life. Come in as my Savior to cleanse me. Come in as my Lord to control me. Come in as my friend to be with me. And I will serve you all the remaining years of my life. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.